we do want to celebrate this very morning the Lord's Supper. What a special time for the Church of Jesus Christ to be able to do so. I want us to take our Bibles and stand together to read John 18, 1 to 14. John 18, verses 1 to 14. This will occupy our time in the Word this morning. John chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. You can follow along as I read. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And Jesus said to them, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, as we gather now around your word, may this be a strong and vibrant and encouraging word to our hearts, especially as we celebrate the Lord's Supper on this glorious morning. In Jesus' name, amen. John 18 begins the climactic section of the fourth gospel, culminating, of course, in the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because John's gospel is the most overtly theological gospel of the four gospels that we have, I want to give you, for our meditation on the Lord's Supper, five theological truths, theological statements that the Apostle John gives us here in these 14 verses, which lie behind the narrative of this first portion of John 18. And so here's the first one. Number one. The first of the theological statements that John gives us could be summarized this way. Because of his omniscience, because of his omniscience, 
Jesus knows the plan. Because of his omniscience, Jesus knows the plan. Look at the first four verses of John 18. As we just read, when Jesus had spoken these words, what words? Well, undoubtedly the words that might very well include chapter 13, but certainly will include verses, uh, excuse me, chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. So those are the these words that John is referencing, no doubt. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley is that valley as you dip below and then ascend right up to Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, where there was a garden, John says, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now John doesn't tell us, but the other Gospels very definitely tell us that this is the Garden of Gethsemane. Of course, that's a very, very familiar place, isn't it, for Jesus and his disciples. We know, of course, from the narrative of the other Gospel accounts that this garden is the garden in which Jesus sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And Judas, mentioned here in verse 2, mentioned again in verse 3, is that one who betrays Jesus by procuring a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, which tells us that both the Jews and the Romans are involved in the arrest of Jesus Christ. It's dark there, we know that, because the latter part of verse 3 says that they all went there with lanterns and torches. Now, there may have been, uh, because of the celebration time of this event, of course, uh, some level of light, but not enough to where they, of course, are needing here lanterns and torches, and of course these are officers, and so they bring their weapons. These are soldiers. And there are hundreds of them. They are assuming a fight. The arrest of Jesus, which has been a temptation of the religious leaders for a very, very long time, almost in a sense from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, but culminating now, they are assuming that they will not get off scot-free and that there will be a huge melee. I want you to notice that in the substructure of the narrative itself, John, being that most overtly theological gospel, telling us not just the narrative, but the idea of some theological points that he wants to make under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, notice what he says in verse 4. This monumental statement, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him came forward. That's where we derive this theological point because of his omniscience. Jesus knows the plan. He's the all-knowing one. He's the God-man. And throughout our meditation this morning, we're going to see so very clearly especially with the three of our five points, the first three, 
He is 100% fully God. And then with the final two points, we are going to see that he is 100% fully man. Theologians call this the hypostatic union. You say, what in the world does that mean? The hypostatic union is simply another way, and by the way, theologians have to come up with words like that to justify their, their annual salary. <laughs> and they use that term so that you and I can understand that Jesus is fully God and fully divine. Uh, uh, fully human. And as such, John wants to underscore that point here in verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. And I want you to know that that little phrase, came forward, is not a throwaway phrase. It's built directly upon the idea that because Jesus knows that his hour has come, he voluntarily and in his own leadership steps forward. It's a huge point to make. You know, of course, that the Gospel of John often talks in these terms. His hour had not yet come. His hour was not yet come. And so you go through this Gospel and you keep reading this and keep reading this and you wonder when the hour has come, and you come now to John 18, and indeed the hour has now come. Jesus knows that. John, being the theologian that he is, and not just the writer, is telling us what he's told us repeatedly in his gospel, and that is that Jesus has omniscience. He is all-knowing. This is the theological point that he wants to make here in verse 4. And it's no different than what he's done throughout this gospel. Turn back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John is peppered throughout with the idea of Jesus' omniscience. Uh, omniscience. This, is, this is how John portrays Jesus the Christ. For instance, in chapter 1 verse 47... Jesus saw Nathanael, one of these disciples to whom he will choose. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit or guile. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Implied, we've never met. How do you know who I am? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. There's a description of his omniscience. They hadn't ever met. Nathaniel didn't know who Jesus was, but Jesus knew who Nathaniel was. And he saw him under that fig tree in his mind's eye because of his omniscience, and he chose Nathaniel along with the others. Look at chapter 2, verse 24. After, of course, all of these Jews are seeing these signs of Jesus, including his making the water become wine at the wedding of Cana in Galilee. Verse 24, But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. These who are only sign seekers, not uh, true followers. They're not uh, legitimately trying to follow Jesus as Lord. And because of that, and because the text says here in verse 24, he knew all people, and indeed needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. How many of us can make such a claim? Well, I know what you're thinking. In fact, you just thought, I sure hope he doesn't go over time today. <laughs> or something of that nature. 
and I might be very dead wrong, but not Jesus. Jesus knows what's in the heart of man because he is omniscient. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 17. Remember the woman at the well? The woman said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. How did Jesus know that? Because he's omniscient. Look at John chapter 6, verse 60. John just repeatedly keeps affirming the omniscience of Jesus Christ. And just after he said, if you don't want to eat my flesh and drink my blood, it's a hard statement. And verse 60 of John 6 says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, this is John's theological statement about this event, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? He knew their minds. He didn't just uh, uh, sort of as a clairvoyant, uh, uh, a good gimmick, uh, like you might see on late night television, uh, someone doing tricks. Jesus is omniscient, and therefore he knows the mind of the disciples. He knows what they're thinking, and they're grumbling. Look at verse 64. But there are some of you, Jesus said, who do not believe. For Jesus knew. Another theological parenthetical statement of John. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. You see, this is, this is Jesus' omniscience. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11. This just goes on and on in John's gospel. You remember, uh, Lazarus is dead. Jesus waits, actually, a few more days so that Lazarus could be really dead because Jesus knows that he will, arrive, he will raise Lazarus from the dead. Look at chapter 11, verse 11. After saying these things, he said that our friend Lazarus has fallen, fallen asleep, using that as a euphemism for death. But I go to awaken him. I, I go to, to uh, cause him to arise from the dead. But the disciples, they don't get it. They don't understand. Verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. In other words, he may be in a coma. Uh, he may be ill, but he's, he's going to be revived. And so Jesus has to say, uh, no, no, no. John's parenthetical comment, verse 13. Now Jesus has spoken of his death. But they thought that he meant rest, taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And of course you know, he raises him from the dead. Look at chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, this is that section now where it is the hour. It starts in chapter 13 and it goes now through the, the narrative that we're even reading and into 19 and also 20. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, notice the word, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He knows, he knows, he knows. Why? Because he's all-knowing. John wants to make these overt theological statements about the omniscience of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 15. I mean, we're beginning to see, aren't we, that this is one of John's major points. John chapter 15, verse 20. 
This is even a kind of prophetic word of Jesus. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, that is true. Disciples, true believers, they will also keep yours. There are going to be some who say they're followers of me. They're not. They're religious, but they're lost. And they're going to be offended by you because they were offended about me. And if they persecute me, they will also persecute you. There will be some who will be true disciples, true believers. And if they keep my word, which they will, they will also keep your word. Jesus is almost giving a, a, a prophecy. Why? Because he knows all things. And that prophecy will come true. And of course it did. Look at chapter 16, verse 31. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. And that's exactly what happened, right? They're all scattered. Why? Because Jesus is all-knowing. He's all-knowing. And because of that, he knows the plan. Nothing at all, my friends, nothing at all will subvert the plan of God, and nothing at all will cause Jesus to to ask the question, what's happening? Why is this happening? Because he's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows exactly what the Father's plan is, and he's committed to following the plan of God. He knows exactly what's going to happen next because he is the omniscient Son of God, and therefore he is the one who is, in fact, saying, it's okay. It's okay. I know the plan. Don't worry. In Matthew chapter 6, don't be anxious. Don't worry. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about those things. My Heavenly Father will take care of you. Trust His plan. He's got His will, and He's working out His will. Isn't this a wonderful thing to meditate on with regard to the Lord's Son? Our God, Jesus Christ, is omniscient. And he knows the plan. If you and I weren't careful, we would uh, scroll down the internet, as we say, and see all of these terrible stories that looks like the overthrow of the world through uh, the legislative or presidential decrees of the United States of America. As though somebody gives an executive order and all chaos breaks loose. And now who's in charge? What's the plan? We even have some federal judge who goes against his president. And then you have the president who, who's attempting to go against the judge. And then we've got uh, trials and we've got bans and injunctions and temporary relief. And we've got all of these things. And if you're not careful, you're going to say to yourself, who's in charge? What's the plan? Does anybody know? I'm scared. I'm fearful. What's going to happen to our country? What's going to happen to my family? What's going to happen to me? You know what's going to happen to you? Exactly what God wants to happen to you. And me. We trust His plan. God's omniscient. In the person of Jesus Christ. Number two. Number two. Because of His omnipotence, not just His omniscience, his all-knowingness, but because of his omnipotence, Jesus is in total control. Jesus is in total control. If you want to take the Apostle John, and if you want to take the narrative 
of that which he writes, the details. Yes, there's a there's a Kidron Valley. And if we wanted to know more about it, we could do some research about it. We could find out about what kind of valley this is. And it's actually a, a sort of a, an Engedi, a, a stream. Uh, and it's a very interesting to find out about the history of it. I read uh, about it this week. And, uh, and then there's a garden, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and that's, of course, that place where Jesus did spend a lot of time with his disciples. And, you know, it conjures up in your mind several questions. Well, was it an open garden? And there were many trees there. And uh, was it a lovely place in which you could come together and pray? Apparently Jesus believed that to be so. Apparently the disciples enjoyed being there with their master. I'd like to know more about it. I'd like to go there. I'd like to find out about it. And, and so uh, the scripture kind of teases you a little bit uh, so that you might find out a little bit more information. But you know what John does? He says, as important as those things are, both because they are historical fact and because I'm uh, sending it for you down in this narrative structure, I want you to see a substructure here and I want you to know this. Judas procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, that's officers from the Jews, uh, those who were in charge, those who were in control, and they went to this garden of Gethsemane, whatever it's like, and they went with lanterns and torches and weapons for an epic battle, and there were hundreds of them, and John wants you to know, as soon as you hear all of those details, and as soon as you might believe that God isn't in control, and what is the plan, and is Jesus truly omniscient? Is, is there going to be an overthrow of the very divine plan of God? And what about the omnipotence of Jesus? Can he control this? Is he able to withstand this? Because if this is the hour that has now come, then what's going to happen? And John says, let me give you verse 4. Jesus, knowing that all would happen to him, came forward by his own initiative. And what happens? And he said to them, this, this band of soldiers, whom do you seek? Verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. They made it very specific. Jesus the Nazarene, literally. And Jesus said to them, I am. Now our text in the ESV says, I am he. And that's fine as far as it goes. But it's only two words in the Greek text. And it's been given several times in John's Gospel, and it is that, that phrase, ego eimi, I am. And you say, well, he's just identifying himself. You ask me if this is Jesus of Nazareth, and I'm telling you, I am he, I am that one, Jesus of Nazareth. Oh no, there's something greater going on here. Verse 5, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them when Jesus said to them, I am. They did what? They drew back and fell to the ground. Well, why does John include that? You said because it happened. Well, it, it did happen. It is a narrative, historical fact that Jesus said, Ego me, I am. And they were all there, ready to arrest him, and something happened, something supernatural, and they fell to the ground. That's not normal. Think about this scene. It's dark. They've got lanterns, they've got torches, they've got guns. They believe that either the disciples of Jesus or other erstwhile followers of Jesus are going to be there ready to fight. They've got swords. 
They've got knives. They're coming for battle. They assume that this is the end. They know they have to defend themselves. They want to defend the honor of Jesus himself. And so Jesus knowing this because he's omniscient and he knows that there's a plan. And because he's omnipotent and they ask him a question, he wants to make sure, he wants to ensure that not only these soldiers, but all of the religious leaders and maybe even his very own disciples understand and underscore this fact and this one huge fact. I am. I am. And what he did with the statement of I am is to announce to them that he is Yahweh God of the Old Testament. I am. No wonder they fell backwards on their faces. These aren't believers. Undoubtedly, there's not a one of them that's a believer in here, a true follower of Jesus the Messiah. So what are these unbelievers doing? What are these Jewish soldiers, what are these, these Roman soldiers doing and falling backwards just because some guy named Jesus, uh, the Nazarene, said, I am? I mean, you and I would say, what in the world's going on here? I mean, he, he looks just like a man. He looks just like a human being. Uh, he's been teaching and eating and, and sleeping among us. I mean, why does a guy say, I am, and people fall around all around him? Because John's underscoring the point that God is in their midst. The omnipotent, all-knowing God is in their midst. And John doesn't want you or me to lose the fact that Jesus, even in the situation of his arrest and his impending trials, is not anything other than being in total control. Can we apply that to our day? I think we can. In, in a sense, even though we are curious as to that which happens in our world. Curious. Concerned. It's all under the sovereign control of God himself. Let me be more specific. It's all under the control of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in total control. And you see the irony here? Jesus doesn't have any, he doesn't have any weapons. He's standing there in the midst of hundreds and hundreds of soldiers. He's got disciples who have weapons. We know that from Peter and the narrative. And yet John wants us to know for a fact, theologically and practically, that Jesus is in total control. He initiated to come forward, verse 4 says. And when he says, I am even with Judas there, even with the betrayer there, even with the soldiers there, even with the religious leaders there, in verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. That's not a small detail in this text. It's huge. Remember what Peter did when Jesus called the sea? Peter said what? Get away from me, Lord. For I'm a sinful man. You know what Ezekiel did when there was a divine presence in the midst of that man? He fell down. 
You know what Paul did in Acts chapter 9 when he was recounting his testimony? And he, he was on the road in, to Damascus to uh, kill Christians if he could, at least put them in prison. And then he was visited on that road by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ in a beatific vision. And when that vision came upon him, and when he heard these words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What did he do? <coughs> fell flat on that road because he knew he was in the presence of the divine. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. If you really had a vision of Jesus Christ, if Jesus Christ personally visited you, personally spoke to you, and declared that he is the I am of the Old Testament, I would suspect you would do the very same thing, right? Fall down on your face in abject terror. Why? Because you're sinful and he's not. Because he's God and you're not. And you know this. Therefore, he's in total control of the situation. Total control. Remember John the Apostle himself who wrote these very words. Revelation 1.17. Jesus Christ appeared to him in full, effulging glory. The white robe, Jesus Christ, who comes, the I Am. And John says, when I got that vision, I fell on my face as a dead man. Because you know you don't know the plan, you know he knows the plan. And you are saying, just as I am, Jesus Christ is in full control of this situation. And he's in charge. So he asked them again, verse 7, Whom do you seek? Third time, and Jesus said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am. Yes, I told you that I am. And then he said this, So if you seek me, let these men He's calling the shots. He's telling them what to do and what not to do. It's amazing. That leads us to our third point. Because of his authority, Jesus' own words become themselves Holy Scripture. Because he has full authority. He's not just, he's not just claiming divine omniscience and divine omnipotence, but full and complete divine authority. You say, how so? Look back at verse 7. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. See, so if you seek me, let these men go. And then this theological statement of John. He says it in verse 4. He says another divine statement theologically in verse 6. And now he gives us a third theological divine statement in verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. John, what do you mean? What Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 12. Here's what he said in John 17, 12. I kept them in your name, speaking to his heavenly Father, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now, John is actually quoting Jesus and saying, remember what he said in John 17, 12, where he didn't lose a single one, the true disciples? And now he's saying, to fulfill the word 
yet spoken. This is none other than when you're reading your Old Testament, and when you're reading it, and you read of this particular prophecy from Isaiah, or, or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, or, or Micah, or Malachi, and then you read your New Testament, and you read, this is the fulfillment of what Isaiah said. Quote, unquote. And now John is saying, let me take you to what Jesus said in John 17, 12. I didn't lose a single one of them. And when he said that, this is that fulfillment. The very night in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, take me, let these others go. And it was a fulfillment of the word on the spot. And guess what? That's been captured for us as Holy Scripture. Jesus' own words are divine. Divinely authoritative. He's, he's omnisciently knowing it all. He's omnipotently controlling it all. And he's authoritatively ruling all by his very word. I can't do that. I, I can't command you to do anything. I can't say, you must obey. Or you shall incur great wrath from Lance Quinn. And you would do what you just did. <laughs> and I don't see anybody falling down on the ground. But here's the word of Jesus. And he says, I told you I wasn't going to lose any of them. And this is the garden. And this is the time. And this is the spot. Take me. Leave them alone. And that's exactly what happened. You say, yeah, but they scattered. Well, they couldn't have. Jesus didn't want them to scatter. Uh, the soldiers didn't take them as they should have. I mean, they were all rabble-rousers just like Jesus. Well, they were seditious. They're, they're trying to overturn uh, the very kingdom of Rome. We've got to take them all in. They're, they're co-conspirators. Throw them in jail. They're going to be in prison or they're going to die. How is it that they scatter? How is it that they aren't arrested with Jesus? Because of his authoritative word. Let them go. You want me? Take me. Leave them. And that very word, John says, becomes the fulfillment of what he had spoken, which now has become scripture. You remember in Matthew chapter 5, several times Jesus said, You have heard that it was said of old, dot, 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 but I say to you, dot, dot, dot. You know what he's saying? You thought you had the right interpretation. You thought you had uh, correctly adjudicated the law. But I'm telling you, you got it wrong. And I'm also going to add some things. That's the authoritative word of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his word becomes the very word of Holy Scripture. And that's why it says in John 10, 35, And the Scripture cannot be broken. You want to see another one? Look at John chapter 2. This is amazing. John chapter 2 puts Jesus' word on a par with Scripture. You want a scriptural attestation of this? Here it is. John chapter 2, verse 22. When he was speaking about the temple of his body, you know, kill me and I'll rise again from the dead on the third day. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, his verbal word, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
You see how it puts scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken on a par with each other? Well, this is an authoritative word. And because, because it's an authoritative word, it's a scriptural word. And that means it's binding on you and me. And that means we've got to study that word. And we've got to know that word. And we've got to see that word fulfilled. And we've got to obey that word. You want to meditate on the truth during communion that God's word means everything to us in the person of Jesus Christ. I thank you for your holy word. Number four. Number four. And here's the humanity. I've just given you 100% deity. He's divine. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's authoritative. That's the divine side. Here's the human side. Because of his obedience, Jesus delights to do his Father's will. Because of his obedience, because he is a man, he delights to do his Father's will. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. No other gospel tells us that this was Peter. They just say a disciple. John tells us it was Peter. No other gospel tells us that it was Malchus. That's his name. John tells us that was his name. And verse 11 says, So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. And then, and then these very amazing words, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Who's given him the cup? The Father. You say, well, wait a minute. The, the, the soldiers, Judas, the Romans, the Jewish leaders, they, they were all doing that. But didn't we sing a moment ago that the, the Father was the one who was smiting Christ? And you know the cup here? Is a way of speaking in our Old Testaments, not always, but several places. The cup is a reference to the pouring out of God's divine wrath. Shall I not receive the poured out divine wrath of the Father upon me? Should I not be willing to do this? You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's here in the garden. He's here with his disciples. And before, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was with his disciples. And he was thinking about the cross. And, and he said, there, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will. And I've heard Bible teachers. Uh, I've heard those who presume themselves to be of some reputable note saying things like this. Jesus didn't really want to go to the cross. He was in that garden and he was sweating those drops as it were of blood and, and he didn't want to go to the cross and he was trying to wiggle out of it. He was trying to say no and, and, it, and it wasn't his will and even though it was the Father's will. And I've heard that and probably so have you. And I say, poppycock. Rubbish. John 4.34 My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5.30, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6.38, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You, you can't reconcile those statements with someone who is reluctant to go to the cross. You say, well, what's happening there? 
When he says, if it's possible. Well, even though he says if it's possible, he also says this. Not my will, but yours be done. What was he he agonizing over? I'll tell you what he was agonizing over. He was agonizing over two things. One, being the sin bearer of the world. And secondly, the idea that for the first time, not just in human history, but in eternity, both before and after, in a moment in time, on that cross, he would be separated from the Father. As the Father was pouring out his divine wrath on his own dear son. You want to tell me that that wouldn't be an agonizing moment? An agonizing thought? But it was God's will and it was Christ's will. And don't try to tell me that this wasn't Christ's will. In his obedience, he delighted to do his Father's will. You say, well, can you substantiate this? Yes, I can. Hebrews chapter 12. I certainly can show you that in Hebrews chapter 12, this was in the mind of Christ. This was in the mind of our our loving Lord. This was what Jesus had in his heart when he said that we ought to, the writer of Hebrews, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. You know what was in the heart and mind of Jesus Christ? Joyful obedience to the will of the Father. Joyful obedience. Not begrudging will. Not circumstances be what they may. I guess I'll have to go to the cross and do what you've asked me to do. None of that at all. In fact, a couple of chapters before Hebrews chapter 10, when Christ came into the world, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I delight to do your will, O God. That's why the title of our message this morning is, I delight to do your will, O my God. You say, well, it says there, I have come. Yes, that's a translation, but there are other translations, and I think they're better because they're quoting Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 to 10, and when they quote that psalm, it says, I delight. I pleasure. None of these burnt sacrifices and offerings. I delight. My pleasure is in doing what your will is. Oh, I love that. Because it shows this humanity of Jesus. And it's for us a meditative moment to say, do I delight in doing the Father's will? Like my Lord, like my Savior. You say, but but he was 100% God. Yes, yes, yes he is. But he's no less 100% man. And he's our exemplar. He's our pioneer. He's our way forward. He, he's, he's that example for us to follow in his steps. And what he did as man was obey the will of God. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Final, final. Fifth and final. Another aspect of his humanity that John wants us to know theologically. Because of his humility, because of his humility, Jesus allows himself to be arrested and tried. I mean, he's there in the garden. 
And he's already said, I am. And they fall back. They're in the presence of the divine. Uh, he's, he's in total control. He knows the plan. He knows everything. He's totally authoritative. And yet, divinity in their midst. Because he knows that. Because he is in control. And precisely because he is authoritative. He says... I will do what the Father has asked of me. And he places his arms behind his back. And he willingly goes to the cross to fulfill the plan. Because he knows that. And to do it willingly. Because he knows he's powerful enough to say to Pilate, you know, if I want to, I could rain down upon you a legion of angels and you would be consumed but I shall not. I will do what the Father has asked me to do. And I will do it obediently, and I will do it humbly. I will allow myself to be arrested unjustly, and to be tried unjustly, in at least two, if not three, trials, illegitimate, too quick to adjudicate anything because the plan is for me to hang on that cross on Friday and to be raised on Sunday. And that's what we find in verse 12. So, so the men of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was high priest that year, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. John chapter 11. That's what Caiaphas said. He, he, he prophesied better than he knew. And when he did, Jesus actually went along with prophecy and the plan because he was the humble man, Christ Jesus. This is, this is a great way, is it not? to prepare ourselves for the reception of the Lord's table. Let's do that now. Bow with me. Holy Father, because of the divine omniscience of Christ, the omnipotence of Christ, the authority of Christ, and yet, as a man, the obedience of Christ and the humility of Christ motivates us to glorify this Christ, to magnify this Christ, this Messiah sent from God, Jesus the Nazarene. As we partake of the cup and the bread, we do so with the marvel that he placed his hands behind his back. And he willingly went all the way to the cross for the joy set before him, despising the shame, so that he might sit down with the right hand of the majesty on high. Let us celebrate through the bread and through the cup. Amen.